0: Good morning. I want to jump right into our scripture passage for today. It's Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six, if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible. In your bulletin it says verses 1 through 13, but I'm only going to read the first six verses, and I'll pick up on the rest of the passage in next week's message. So let's hear God's word, Ephesians 4:1 through6. Paul writes, "As a prisoner for the Lord, therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received." You know, one of the things I like about our church is that we always have a steady stream of new people coming and getting involved. And, and some of these folks don't have any church background at all. They weren't raised in a church or their church involvement was so long ago that they've forgotten whatever it was that they, you know, once knew. And I think that is refreshing to have new people coming here because it forces us to look at what we're doing to make sure we don't become so enmeshed in our own churchy stuff that we lose touch with those who, you know, who don't know anything about faith in Christ or what it means to be a Christian. It kind of keeps us on our toes. And let me just say, I hope you have your eyes open to welcome new people every Sunday. I mean, it's easy to get kind of so caught up with just the people you already know that you might just be passing right by some new folks who, who actually need to be welcomed who are feeling a little lost or alone or overwhelmed. So make that your job every Sunday. Just kind of extend yourself a little bit. See somebody who's new and just say something like, you know, I'm so-and-so. I don't think I've met you before. How, how long have you been coming here? And that way, it's not embarrassing to anyone, whether it's their first time here or they've been a member for 30 years. So just keep your eyes open to welcome new folks. You know, a lot of times new people don't know our Christianese jargon. They don't use the vocabulary that those on the inside, sort of, we sort of take it for granted. For example, a while back I ran into a man in the hallway who was looking just a little bit confused and I could just tell it was his first time here on a Sunday morning. I think the children were singing in worship that day and he was probably a dad, you know, who came with his video uh, to, to video his child's performance like it was an elementary school concert. So I asked him, you know, may I help you? And he said, Yeah. He said, uh, Can you tell me where's the auditorium? You know, an auditorium. I thought, okay, he's obviously new because he doesn't speak our language. He doesn't know to call it, you know, the sanctuary or even the ministry center. So, you know, I took him to where he needed to go. And then afterwards, afterwards, I thought about that word auditorium because. Because it comes from the combination of of two Latin words, audio, which means to listen, and toro, which means to the bull. So maybe that's more appropriate, especially when I'm speaking. But, But seriously, how would you explain what we do here to someone who is brand new, who doesn't know anything at all about church? If someone sincerely asked, what's the purpose of your group? why do you exist? What's the reason that you come together? Well, you might say something like, well, we we come together to worship God, whom we know through Jesus Christ, and to serve him together in this world. I mean, that's a pretty good basic answer. But what if the person then asks sincerely, but why do you have to do that together? Why can't you just worship your God on your own, by yourself? Why do you need to do it with others? That is a great question. And chapters four, five, and six of Ephesians were written by Paul so that we can have a better understanding of why followers of Jesus are called by God to come together in a special kind of community called the church. Let's go back for just a second. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul was like a, like a master artist with a, with a big canvas, and he painted in these huge, broad brushstrokes. He covered so much. In chapter one, he splashed on these, these brilliant colors of the sovereignty of God at work in his plan of salvation and the awesome power of God that we see in the resurrected and exalted Savior, Jesus Christ. In chapter two, then, he kind of, adds these shimmering shades of the enormity of God's love and mercy, this love that welcomes every person, no matter what race or culture or language, because we're all sinners equally in need of repentance and grace. And in chapter 3, he completed the painting by kind of framing it with his own testimony, his own personal encounter with this vast immensity of God's unbounded love that love that can now bring change down into the deepest parts of our human heart, the the innermost being down into our very soul. And then chapter four begins with a little word, therefore, or then in some translations. It's a connecting word that says, on the basis of everything that I have just written, I want you to do this. Three chapters of this pretty heady theology And now Paul says in verse 1, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. All that theology is great, but now you have to live it. Now you've got to put it into practice. Now you have to live your life a different way, a way that reflects your encounter with this magnificent grace of God that you receive through Jesus Christ. If you've got Christ in your heart, it's not optional. He's the one giving the orders, and it's your job to do what he says. And this isn't a solo life. You're to do it not as lone rangers, but as a new kind of community linked together with others who claim the name of Christ. This is what Jesus wants for his disciples. Just a cursory reading of the Gospels will show you how much this kind of spiritual community was Christ's desire for his disciples. In John 13:34, Jesus gave this command as a summary of all that he wanted his disciples to do. He said, "A new command I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another." Did you hear that last phrase? "By this everyone will know that you are my disciples." if you love one another. Jesus says there is to be a special relationship, a special bond between all those who claim him as savior. Of course we're supposed to love all people as our neighbors, but there is to be a unique relationship of love and interdependence between Christians. And the way Christians live as a community of faith will be their most effective form of witness. It should be the best way that Christ is made real to the world. This new family created, the family of God, and it includes all those who call God their Father through Christ. Now, no one goes on to talk about this more than the Apostle Paul. In fact, that great British Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce entitled his commentary on Ephesians, God's New Society. He writes this in the preface. He says, nobody can emerge from a careful reading of Paul's letter to the Ephesians with only a privatized personal gospel. For Ephesians is the gospel of the whole church. It sets forth God's eternal purpose to create through Jesus Christ a new society which stands out in bright relief against the somber background of the old world. For God's new society is characterized by life in place of death, by unity and reconciliation in place of division, and alienation, by wholesome standards of right behavior in place of the corruption of wickedness, by love and peace in the place of hatred. Does that make sense to you? The church is supposed to be God's island of hope in the sea of despair. It's to be God's light on a hill that shines into the world's darkness. It is God's hospital for sinners and his school for Christian living. Now, in hearing that, you might think F.F. Bruce and the Apostle Paul are sort of, you know, kind of lost in space with this utopian ideal of Christian community. I mean, this kind of, of radical community centered on Jesus Christ is a, is a lofty goal, but honestly, does it ever work? Well, what we're going to see in the next three chapters is that Paul actually has both feet firmly planted on the ground. He knows how difficult it is to live together in this kind of community. He has no illusions about what happens when sinful people come together. Even though redeemed by Christ, we carry all our woundedness and our brokenness, we carry it into this new community. Our healing, our inner life transformation has begun through the Holy Spirit, but we've all got a long way to go. But it's in the crucible of the church that the Holy Spirit does his work on us. It is through our relationships with others that God begins to shape us. So it's no wonder that the very first issue Paul has to address with the Ephesians is conflict in the church. Conflicts were going on in the church of Ephesus based on race and culture and expectations and hurt feelings. So Paul addresses All that with God's principles for for handling the tornado of emotions that gets stirred up when imperfect Christians come together. Do you know what has always been the greatest danger to the local church? It isn't the rise of secularism, it's not government overreach into our religious liberties, it's not a downturn in the economy that affects people's financial giving to the church. The greatest danger to the church the thing that has killed more churches and done more damage to the cause of Christ is a Christian who is active in the ministries of the church, maybe a leader, maybe someone others look up to who gets their feelings hurt. Something happens and they feel slighted, they feel insulted, something didn't go the way that they wanted it to go, and, and they feel wounded. Maybe they feel their their power is being threatened because they like being a big fish in a small pond. And unconsciously, they take that hurt and they store it away. And in their heart, a seed begins to grow, a seed of anger, a seed of resentment, a seed of self-pity. Eventually, that seed gets toxic and its poison starts to seep out, it starts to spread. They go to their friends for support and sympathy. We all do. They share one side of the story, heavily slanted in their favor. They, they detail the injury they received or maybe just mention for prayer that so-and-so, the person that they blame for their hurt, that to be under a lot of stress. We should pray for him or her. And they plant a seed of doubt about that person in the minds of their friends. They get a group on their side by looking for people who are willing to listen, people who unknowingly get drawn into their drama, who become a supporting player in this little soap opera. And if not dealt with, that wound grows. It becomes a real bruise on their soul, and every time they see the person that they blame for their injury, it's like someone is poking that bruise with a stick. So they start doing some passive-aggressive things like forgetting to make that phone call or to send out that email that they, they promised to send and subtly they sabotage someone else's event or ministry in the church. Little digs in conversation start to pop up. Things said publicly that maybe should only be said privately. They gossip, they spread half-truths, but always with an excuse, always with a reason why, why they are the one is being misunderstood. Eventually their, their anger gets more obvious. The conversations get more strident, more destructive. They begin to spread disunity and factions emerge. They even spiritualize it and say it's spiritual warfare at work. Others begin to recognize the destructive behavior but they don't say anything or, or do anything. They think people in the church should just be nice and they want to avoid any conflict and inside they're thinking I don't want that person to turn their guns on me. So they don't say anything. And that's like blood in the water to the angry person. They just ramp up their righteous cause even more. And if it's not addressed in a healthy way, eventually the whole thing blows up into a really ugly mess. People leave the church. A pastor is forced out. And the church, this new community of God's love its witness gets a big, ugly black eye. Its witness withers. I can't tell you how many churches have been ruined by this scenario. There probably isn't a week that goes by where I don't either hear of at least one more church embroiled in some kind of serious conflict like this, or where I have to deal with some emotionally charged issue in the life of our congregation. Christians who get their feelings hurt, who hold a grudge, and then who subtly or not so subtly try to sabotage each other. And it shouldn't be a surprise because this was the kind of thing that happened in the early church too. It made Paul pull his hair out. Here's how Paul described having to confront the troubled Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. He says, I am afraid that I may come and find you different from what I want you to be. And that you may find me different from what you want me to be. I'm afraid that there may be rivalry, jealousy, hot tempers, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorderly conflict. That sounds like a fun church, doesn't it? Sounds more like a New Jersey politics or a middle school cafeteria. But that's the church imperfect people, ordinary people, good people who don't know how to handle their hurts in a Christ-like way. One of the hardest things to deal with as followers of Christ is that emotional health is part of spiritual maturity. Let me say that again. Emotional health is part of spiritual maturity. How we handle our hurts, our wounds, our fears, our desires, our needs. With other people in the church family, that is a huge part of of what it means to grow into spiritual maturity. It is very hard to live together in true Christian community because it requires us to change the patterns of how we handle our emotions and handle our relationships. We're not supposed to act like the rest of the world. We're supposed to imitate Christ and follow his example. We're supposed to grow up and learn to forgive. We're supposed to be able to move beyond the petty things that so often drag people down. The kingdom of God is to be a kingdom of right relationships, and that's to be modeled in the church, to show the world that Christ does make a difference. So Paul gives the Ephesians and us kind of the prescription, the antidote to this kind of emotional poison. This is how you climb out of that emotional quagmire. One simple sentence. Probably the hardest verse in the Bible obey, Verse two, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then he adds in verse three, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. If you want to see how emotional health gets coupled with spiritual maturity, that's it. That's God's direct word to you. This quartet of character qualities that mirrors the example of, of Jesus. Humble. This is actually a word that the writers of the New Testament created. It's not found in any other ancient manuscripts. All the traditional words in Greek for humility are negative words associated with the the denigration of a slave, someone who was beaten down and who was forced to stay in their place. The humility of Christ was voluntary. He didn't demand to be treated as he deserved. He didn't push himself to the front of the line even though he could have commanded special treatment. The idea of voluntarily relinquishing one's rights or power or prestige, that was an alien concept in the ancient world and quite frankly it's an alien concept today. But Jesus gives us an example to follow. Philippians 2, three through eight. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on a cross. Humility means letting go of our pride, and that is often what gets wounded, our silly human pride. The second word, gentleness. This is also a great word. It is sometimes badly translated as meekness. This is a strong word. It is used to describe a mighty stallion, powerful and strong, but but that responds to his writer's commands. Gentleness means strength under control. Not weakness, but strength channeled in the right direction, used at the right time and for the right purposes. This may even be harder than humility because it means keeping oneself under control. Controlling your reaction so you don't just fly off the handle. Controlling your words so that you don't run off at the mouth. Controlling your emotions so that you recognize it when that selfish petty side of you is trying to take over. The third word was patience. Literally this word means long temper. It's the exact opposite of a short tempered person. The person who doesn't have a short fuse. Who doesn't blow up at the slightest provocation, who isn't easily bruised, who doesn't hold a grudge, who doesn't jump to conclusions, who doesn't use anger as a weapon to intimidate or bully others. And finally, bearing with one another simply means recognizing that we are all imperfect people in need of grace and that you are the kind of person who can give grace to others even when you feel like you've been mistreated. In looking at the sins of others, Jesus says, turn that into a mirror and look at yourself. Whoever is without sin, cast the first stone, John 8, 7. Take the two by four out of your own eye before you worry about the speck of sawdust in the other person's eye. That's Matthew 7, 5. When you see yourself first and foremost as a forgiven sinner, that's that's when you can give grace to others when they need it. And all of this is how the unity gets built into the body of Christ. Humility, patience, gentleness, gentleness and forbearance. Paul says this is all based on the person of Christ. Verse 4, there's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God doesn't ask us to do anything until we accept what he has done already. Pete Scazzaro, who's a pastor of the New Life Church in Queens and a good friend of this congregation, used to be one of our mission partners, writes about all this kind of stuff in his great book, The Emotionally Healthy Church. Let me read part of what he says. He says, when we ignore the emotional component of our lives, we just go through the motions of Christian activity. But deeply rooted behavioral patterns from our past continue to keep us from living an authentic life of maturity in Christ. We often fail to reflect on what is going on inside us and around us and are too busy to slow down to be with God. As a result, we run the high risk of remaining spiritual infants, failing to develop into spiritually and emotionally mature adults in Christ. Emotional health goes hand in hand with spiritual maturity. Are you carrying any bitterness in your heart this morning? Any resentment towards someone else in the church? Are you nursing any bruised feelings? Are you subtly trying to sabotage or or get back at another brother or sister in Christ? It's time to do something about that. Emotional health, handling conflict, handling hurt feelings in a godly way. That's key to the unity of the body of Christ and to honoring Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because he's the one who wants his children to love one another. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this strikes close to home that we have often allowed our bruised feelings to fester into something that gets ugly. And we just pray your protection on our church and, uh, and that we, Lord, would be a church that would Diligently practice the unity of the body and build the bond of peace through your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves, to look at any bitterness that we are holding or any ways in which we are being emotionally unhealthy with others within the body. Help us to live out these these wonderful qualities of gentleness and patience and forbearance and love. May we truly reflect you to the world around us. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.